37 verses. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them in the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and it top, its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But I leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound by a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the, inter or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top, its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds in the heavens lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in, in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of field till seven periods of time passes over him. This is the interpretation, O king. 
It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, It is... Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, and all his works are right. And his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you. Before I begin, I just want to say on behalf of myself and my family. Oh, some of that time. Uh, let me begin again. Uh, on behalf of myself and my family, I want to thank our veterans uh, that have served uh, sacrificially so well. And I, I just, um, if you wouldn't mind, if you have, if you currently serve or have served in any way for our country, would you mind just standing right now so we can acknowledge you? Thank you. Thank you for your service. And um, before I begin, um, I'd like us to pray. And uh, like we said last week when we were taking Lord's Supper, is that no matter who won on Tuesday, Jesus is what? He's still Lord. And so no matter if your guy won, no matter if your guy lost, our God has still won. He is on his throne. And just as we read a couple weeks ago in Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. This is not because God has forgotten or left us alone, but God is still providentially working in our world. So let's 
right now as it looks from all regards it looks like uh, President Joe Biden is our is our president for right now and so um, as the scriptures call us to we're going to pray for him right now and pray for wisdom and justice to be part of his uh, part of his uh, I guess rule and position as president so let's pray for Joe Biden right now God we as your people can come and rest in you knowing that whatever whatever comes, no matter who is president in this world, ultimately you are sovereign and you are good and you are wise and you are true. And you set up kings and you bring kings down. And so Lord, as your people, we do not fret, we do not worry, but we know that we are held by your good hand. And so right now, we pray for, for Joe Biden, who looks to be the 46th president of the United States. God, we right now pray and bring supplications to you on his behalf. That God, as he serves as our president, we pray that he would serve with wisdom, with grace, with truth, with justice, God. That he would promote peace and unity in this world. God, that he would do it for the good of the people that he is, he has been called to lead. And Lord, ultimately we, we ask that you would be with his presidency. And that you would bring peace to our nation and to our country and to our world. And that in this time we would see many people come to know of the good news of Jesus Christ. Who is the true king of the whole entire earth. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning the name of uh, the title of my sermon actually comes from my wife. I have to give her credit for this. But it's called The Emperor's New Groove. So uh, the main point of this morning's sermon is God humbles the proud in order to magnify his sovereignty and to call us to repentance. He humbles the proud in order to magnify his sovereignty and calls us to repentance. So if if you laughed at the Emperor's New Groove, that must mean you've seen the movie. So uh, the Emperor's New Groove, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll go ahead and spoil the plot for you, is um, it's about an arrogant, self-centered emperor named Cusco who is just all about himself. Well, one day he is, um, because of his pride and his arrogance, he is transformed into a, anybody know? A llama. Yes, thank you, Avery. He is transformed into a llama. Uh, And so uh, from there, he is trying to regain his throne and his rule and his dominion. So he he gets connected with a peasant called Paca, who is just a humble, lowly man, peasant man. And uh, tries to regain uh, regain his throne and get back to the top. But in the midst of him being changed into a llama, he goes through a number of experiences where he is his perspective and his worldview is radically altered from being changed into a llama. He is he has a different view of the world. And in the end, ultimately, Cusco has a new groove. He has a new way of living because of the experience that he's had of being turned into a llama. Uh, he's been brought low from his exalted position made low in order to teach him humility and that the world ultimately does not revolve around him. Now, uh, it seems like Walt Disney Pictures stole this right out of the Bible, uh, in a sense. Uh, Other than the llama part, though it's not that crazy what happens here in Daniel 4, is that Daniel 4 is a similar plot. Uh, What's going on here is that Just like Cusco, Nebuchadnezzar has established himself and exalted himself to this position of authority, uh, to this position of power, and he has become arrogant in it. 
And so he is going to be made low in order to learn an important lesson. And we're going to hear these words over and over again, this important lesson. It's that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to who he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. You hear that over and over. It's going to be a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar to learn, but he's got to learn it, and we have to learn it. And so let's look at this story as how Nebuchadnezzar comes to this realization that ultimately God is sovereign, and he is the one who gives kings over into people's hands. So let's look at this, this kind of autobiography of Nebuchadnezzar. But the first point is this, is we're going to find out about a patient warning, a patient warning. God patiently warns us when we are in sin. God patiently warns us when we are in sin. Uh, any, of, any of you heard the phrase, uh, shot across the bow? Anybody heard about that? So what you do with a shot across the bow, and you know, particularly in the Navy, is that uh, it's basically a warning sign to an approaching enemy ship to say, hey, watch out, like, uh, l- look out. And there's been a couple of times where this has happen- had to happen in the U.S. Navy. Uh, let me read this uh, one story where it's had to happen, is that there was a U.S. Navy patrol ship, uh, patrol ship named the uh, USS Thunderbolt, I believe. And um, it fired warning shots at an at a armed Iranian um, vessel uh, after the vessel came within 150 yards of collision, colliding with the, the Thunderbolt. And so uh, multiple times the, the Thunderbolt, you know, they sent radio communications, they sent flares, they blew their whistle to notify uh, the Iranian ship, hey, watch out, we're about to collide. And ultimately it came to the Thunderbolt saying they shot two shots over and then the Iranian vessel uh, turned away. And so that was their warning sign of, hey, uh, catch this, get a hint, we're about to collide and we're about to all, uh, we're about to all perish. And so they send a shot across the bow to warn them. Well, just as the Navy has protocols for, uh, for warning enemy ships of, of collision or of being in danger, is that God has a way of warning us when we are in sin and that we need to turn back before it's too late. That just as the U.S. Navy sends warning shots, and so God also sends warning shots. Rather than just torpedo Nebuchadnezzar down, as he certainly has, has the authority to do, no, he actually in mercifully and patiently sends warning signs to Nebuchadnezzar. Stop what you're doing now before it's too late. That's what God does. This is what God does. This is his character. This is his nature. Instead of instantly zapping Nebuchadnezzar, he patiently warns him and sends him signals and messages, particularly in a dream, right? And this is the character of God all across the Bible. As we know, if you think about the story of the Bible, is that multiple times God sends signals to people to warn them to change their way of life. If you think about, uh, you think about Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Is what did he send Pharaoh? Anybody know? Ten what? Plagues. That's, that's shots across the bow. That's warning signs. Stop what you're doing, Pharaoh. Stop trying to compete with Yahweh. You think about Israel when they're in rebellion in the wilderness, is that he continually sends them prophets to warn them. Israel, stop what you're doing. Turn back now before it is too late. And so now God is sending warning signs to Nebuchadnezzar via dreams. Stop what you're doing, Nebuchadnezzar. Stop your way of life. Turn back now before it is too late. And this is what he's doing. Well, what does Nebuchadnezzar have to be warned of? What's he doing wrong? Well, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in these verses, uh, chapter 4 is a little bit different because at the beginning of chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 4, There's these doxologies, these praises. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is praising God for who he is, what he's done, and how his kingdom is better than every other kingdom. Well, that's ultimately what Nebuchadnezzar gets to. 
but that's not where he started. And so Nebuchadnezzar uh, is actually going to tell us his personal testimony in verses 4 through 27. He's, he's telling us his personal testimony of how did I get to the point where I'm saying Yahweh is the king and his, his kingdom is everlasting. How did I get there? Well, he starts off in verse 4. Here's where I started. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Here's where I started. I was smooth and comfortable and, and, and nice in my palace. I was pleased with everything I had. Man, it was just nice. I got real comfortable in my palace. That's what he's saying in verse 4. He was on his high horse. He was exalted in his palace. He was prosperous. He was the mighty of the land. He felt like he was untouchable. He couldn't be touched, right? Nobody could compare to him. And so he was pretty comfortable with where he's at. He almost believed himself to be a god. And so at this point, God sends a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and this dream alarms Nebuchadnezzar, right? It alarms him. It, it, it scares him, what he's seen in this dream. Well, a, as you heard the Stevens read, read this, this, basically this dream consists of uh, a tree and different things. Well, he, he wants to find out what this is all about. And you know what he does? He calls his, he calls his wise men, right? Hey, come in, you know, enchanters and all these people. And he already knows they failed him once. Y'all remember that? Daniel 2? They've already failed him once when he told them, tell me the dream first and then tell me the interpretation. Well, he knows they already failed. They can't meet up to that challenge. So I'll just give you, I'll go ahead and give you the dream now and just give me the interpretation. I'll make it easy for you. Well, guess what? They can't do it. They still can't give the interpretation. And again, we see that God's wisdom is superior, far superior to human wisdom, right? And so Daniel comes on the scene, and he uh, interprets the dream. He tells him the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar relays this dream to him, says, it's a, I saw a tree, and this tree was huge, and its top was in the heavens, and there was birds and animals all taking shelter underneath it. And, and then one day a watcher or a holy one showed up and, and, and was going to cut it down. And that when it was cut down, there was just going to be a stump left of it. And the stump was going to have to go through the inclement weather and have the dew of heaven rain all over it. That was going to be it. It wasn't going to be totally destroyed. There was going to be a stump left for it. And so this was his dream. This is what he goes through. And Nebuchadnezzar knows that, man, only Daniel can be the one to relay something or interpret something like this. He says that Daniel multiple times has the spirit of the holy gods in him. You see that in verse 8 and 9 and verse 18. It's a phrase that is only used of Joseph in Genesis 41 when Pharaoh is having similar dreams and visions and, he, and, De, and Joseph comes to the Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, man, this guy's got the spirit of the holy gods in him. Basically saying, they have a wisdom, Daniel and Joseph, that no other man has and that can only f come from God. And so Daniel begins to relay this dream to him and interpret it. And this dream consists of this large tree. And as you know, the tree is a representation, a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And so Daniel says, hey, I really hope this isn't about you, Nebuchadnezzar. I really hope it's about your enemies, but it doesn't look like it's going to be about your enemies. It's actually, it's about you. It is you. Sounds very similar to uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, or 2 Samuel 11, I guess is when Nathan uh, confronts David. You remember when he tells him that story about the people who steal, you know, the guy who steals goats, and, and Daniel's like, tell me who that man is. We're going to put him in jail. And what, is, uh, what does Nathan say? You are that man. 
Similar things happening here. Daniel said, it is you. This tree is you. And everything that's happening to this tree is going to happen to you if you don't turn around now. If you don't do that, it's you're, you're going to be in for it all. Well, what's the problem with this tree? Well, if, uh, if you're familiar with the language uh, from Genesis 11, as Shane pointed out last week from Genesis 11, is that there's a lot of allusions here in Daniel. Well, it says that this tree has its, its top is reaching to the heavens. If you remember what Genesis 11.4 says is when these people got together to build this tower, they wanted to build its top up into the what? To compete with God and try and overthrow him. So the same thing is happening here with Nebuchadnezzar. Is he's trying to build his kingdom up and himself up so that he can compete and overthrow Yahweh. He wants to be the only king on the earth. Only him. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar's problem is. And this is what Daniel brings to you. And he wants to make sure and say, look, this is not an empty threat, Nebuchadnezzar. You can take this to the bank. And the way he says that is that, you know, when a watcher or an angelic being shows up or a holy one shows up and says something throughout the Bible, you can take it to the bank that it's going to happen. And that's what Daniel's trying to communicate. If you saw a watcher in your dream telling you these things, look, take it to the bank. If you don't stop now, it's going to happen to you. And so he confronts him with this. He says, turn away from your sins. Practice righteousness. Show mercy. So I want to give you a piece of application real quick. I, I, I don't want to delve into the dream and all its little details. I want to just step back and see the dream surface level for a second. Is that how, how merciful is it for God to even warn an arrogant pagan ruler of his tribe? How merciful is that? That God would even warn him. God has no obligation to send a warning to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. That that God would be actually just in zapping and bringing down Nebuchadnezzar with no warning. He would be just in doing so. Because Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and in his arrogance is deserving of instant termination. God would be just in doing that. But rather God in his His mercy sends dreams, he sends plagues, he sends prophets to warn people, to warn Nebuchadnezzar of his failures. And so this is God's character throughout the whole Bible. Is that God is mercifully trying to say, hey, Wes, wake up, wake up, stop doing what you're doing. It is an act of God's kindness for him to warn us of our sin. Paul says in Romans 2, 4 really well. Or do you presume the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what what God's kindness is meant to do for us, congregation. So let me just ask you this. Has God ever sent you warning signs to stop what you're doing? Praise God, right? Praise God. He's incredibly merciful to do so. He may not send dreams or prophets or plagues to you, but he does by his spirit through his word and his people warn us when we're in our sin. I'll give you a personal story here. So I don't know if you were any of you were questioning whether I was perfect or not. This will tell you that I'm not. Is that I, right here a few weeks ago, I'm going to tell a story on Miss Ann Bolton real quick. Right here a couple weeks ago, Miss Ann Bolton stopped me and she pointed out something in me that I had not seen myself. 
not seen my son. It was something that, uh, a sin of mine, that I, I, I just had not, had not clicked for me. And so Miss Ann and her love and her grace and her care for me pointed this out to me. And you know what? Praise God. Praise God that, that he would use Miss Ann Bolton as an instrument to point something out in me so that I could better follow Jesus. This, these are warning signs to us, people. These are warning signs to us. So what are you doing with those? Is that God has certainly probably sent you some warning signs to turn away from, from things, from sin, in order for you not to fall into greater sin. Praise God that he doesn't handle us as we deserve, right? He doesn't, we don't deserve any warning signs. So are you intentionally, congregation, are you intentionally reflecting on the ways that God has shown mercy to you in warning you of things? And what are you doing with those warning signs? How are you handling them? How, how do you handle when you're called out for your sin? How do you handle that? How do you, how do you feel when you're convicted over something? Do you try and suppress it and hold it down? Oh, it doesn't exist. No, 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 it's not me, it's not me. That's a danger because God is trying to patiently warn you. And so Nebuchadnezzar's story continues. So how is Nebuchadnezzar going to respond to God's patient warning? That's, that's the question. What's Nebuchadnezzar going to do now with this vision, with this dream? Well, that leads us to our second point is this prideful response. Prideful response. In our pride, we disregard God's patient warnings and exalt ourselves above God. In pride, we disregard God's warnings and we exalt ourselves above God. That's what we do in our pride. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus is also known for leaving us on these cliffhangers kind of things. Does anybody remember, in, uh, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, the story of uh, the man who built his house on a what? A rock and what's the other one? Sand. And so the story is told is that the wise man builds his house on a rock and the, the foolish man builds his house on sand. And Jesus is trying to get at this point is that the difference in the two is how are they hearing Jesus' words and what are they doing with him? He's saying, look, if you are a wise man, then you will hear my words and you will obey them. He says, if, you are a fool, if you're a fool, here's what you'll do. You'll hear my words and you will not obey them. And so he leaves them off on that story and says, what are you going to do now that you've heard my words? It's almost like a scriptural cliffhanger in a sense. Like, you, you know, you're watching this show on Netflix and it, it cuts you off like, oh, that cannot be the way that show ends. No way. Right? Scriptural cliffhanger. And so right now we're left on a cliffhanger in a sense is that, okay, God has warned Nebuchadnezzar, okay, what's he going to do with the warnings? What's he going to do? You'd think, oh, man, there's no way. That's a, that's a terrifying dream. Yeah, certainly Nebuchadnezzar's got to turn from what he's doing. It's terrifying, right? You think, oh man, I, I would immediately change my ways if I got that dream. Probably not. Because guess what? In our sin and in our pride, we do stupid things sometimes. And we disregard God's warnings. And that's what, that's what he did. You already know, if you look at verse 29, you already know that something bad is about to happen. You already know that something good is not, is not about, it's just not going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to respond rightly. Because look, look at what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in verse 29. So he's had 12 months to chew on this dream. Because at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Let me just, uh, let me just say this. 
there's only one other character in the Bible that was walking on the roof before he did something stupid. Anybody got a guess? David. There's only two people in the Bible that are, are said they are walking on the roof before they did something stupid. So David is walking on the roof just like Nebuchadnezzar, and they're viewing their kingdom. And then David actually commits sexual immorality. Then he basically lies, and he murders, and his sin continues and continues and continues. So the scene is set up for sin for Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on his roof. He's viewing his kingdom. He's looking out over the expanse of it. And look what he does. Look what he says. Verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You hear all the first person in there? I, my, my. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've created. Look what I've done. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. That's what pride does. Look at me. Look at me. And so he attributes everything that he has to himself. That is how, that's how Nebuchadnezzar responds to the dream. I, 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 me, me, me. And this is, this is the problem since Genesis 3, right? Pride is the problem since Genesis 3. Why do we have to listen to God? Why can't I call the shots? Why can't I make the commands? He, he shouldn't have anything to, to command to me. I, I should be able to, to command him, and he do what I want. That's what pride does. Underneath pride, underneath our pride, cross point, is this belief that I am better than God, and he doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. That is what is underneath pride. I am better than God, and he doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. That is what is underneath pride. Pride is saying, I can do things better than God because I am better than God. You ever had somebody undermine you? Doesn't it feel good? It feels so good when somebody cuts the legs right out from under you. Right? No, it doesn't, right? But this is what pride is doing against God. It is undermining his person and his authority when we live in pride. Tim Shally says it well. Pride is a state of mind or, more essentially, a condition of the heart in which a person has supplanted the rule of God over his life with the rule of his own will. So who's going to rule me? Not God. No, no, no. What I choose. What I want to rule me. Not God. And so this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar. His eyes are fixed on him. Even after this dream, his eyes are constantly fixed on him. Me, me, me despite God already showing himself as superior to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar's response is, should be a wake-up call for us. Is that how do you respond to warning signs? How do you respond to when people call you out for things, for sin? Do you deny it? Do you, are you unteachable? Do you get defensive? Do you get dismissive? Do you d- disregard? Because pride can take many forms congregation cross point it, it can manifest itself in so many ways it, let me just give you a couple of them and how they they manifest so if you want to take notes on this uh, that's fine performance pride can ma- manifest itself in performance i do this i do that it's me i've done this 
Pride can manifest itself in blame shifting. Everyone else is the problem, not me. Everyone else is to blame. Pride can manifest itself in nobility. You ever heard somebody say, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Pride. Pride manifests itself in perspective. When we exalt somebody else's sin and diminish or belittle our own sin, that is pride. Ooh, I can't believe they do something like that. But, you know, I only deal with these type of sin. Pride shows itself, manifests itself in security. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm untouchable. Pride manifests itself in listening. I have everything to teach people and nothing to learn from anybody. Pride manifests itself in concern. I'm more preoccupied with myself rather than others. And pride manifests itself in comparison. Well, I look pretty good when you put me up next to him. Right? All those are manifestations of pride. And remember, pride is just not about what you say. Pride goes deeper than your mouth. Pride is not just about the words that you say. Pride is about the disposition of your heart towards God. Pride is not just about our mouths, people. It's that our hearts can be deeply entrenched in pride. And so do you consider your pride as bad as it really is? And this is one reason that makes it really bad, is that it is so contrary to our Savior's own example. Philippians 2 is really clear about that. He who, who had everything humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why it's so heinous, is that it's so contrary to our Savior. And so Nebuchadnezzar has been warned. So what is God supposed to do now? He warned him. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he showed his pride, didn't care, disregarded God's warnings. What's God supposed to do now? Oh, you know what? It's okay, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, no, go on. It's not that bad. No, what God decreed, he will certainly do. And God said, if you continue to act like this, Nebuchadnezzar, I will discipline you. And so God must act. This is number three. God's humbling of the proud is for their good and their restoration, not their pain and humiliation. God's humbling of the proud is for our good and our restoration, not our pain and humiliation. I don't know if any of you knew I played football in high school. I don't know if I give off that athletic feel to you. But um, when I played football in high school, I, I really, <laughs> I told my football coach I was going to be telling a story about it today. Um, I really thought my football coaches enjoyed seeing me writhe in pain. Like, when I would have to do up-downs, you know, chop your feet, hit the ground, like, and, you know, do all these things. I really thought they got amusement from seeing me cry and not saying I did that, but if I were to, to cry and to be in agony and pain. And I, I, I thought it brought them joy for them to see me throw up my lunch. I, I just, it, that's, that was the disposition. That, that's really what I felt from them. They enjoy this. They're cruel. They are cruel. They enjoy seeing a 16-year-old 
cry for his mom during football practice. But at the end of the four years of playing high school football, I I realized that their desire was to teach me lessons that only pain, sweat, tears, vomiting could teach me. And that's character. Character. They weren't necessarily trying to make me into the best athlete possible because this might be a surprise to you. I had no shot at college, uh, college football. They were trying to do something more for me. They were trying to make me a better man. That's what they were trying to do. Character is not an easy lesson, and neither is humility. And sometimes it takes a hard life experience to do that. Sometimes we have to learn humility the hard way. And this seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's case. Humility is going to be a hard lesson for him to learn, and it's not God's enjoyment to teach him. Humility is going to be a hard lesson for us to learn, but it does not come at God's amusement, enjoyment to teach him. He does so. But humbling Nebuchadnezzar and humbling us is required in order to teach us that God is the one who is king over the entire universe. And so as you all know, the famous line from the Bible, pride cometh before a fall. And so God's decree was not an empty threat. It wasn't a joke. It was to be taken seriously. And so what is the punishment? Well, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a animal. He is taken out and brought to the back and made a beast to live with the beast, to eat like the beast, to think like the beast, to grow long claws and long hair. You can kind of imagine that. And to almost be brought to the point of insanity. But uh, one author has helped me think through this, that there is a, there is a correlation between pride and insanity and animalistic tendencies. Is that what was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, his pride, is now being expressed in his physical appearance, in his physical actions. Here's what pride does. It's an author named James Bizon. He says this, pride is just a form of insanity. It leads us to form a distorted view of ourselves and by extension of the world around us, which of course is the very essence of insanity. It leads us to see ourselves as opposed to God as the center of the universe. Is that we become delusional when we're in pride. When we live in pride, we don't see ourselves, God, or the world as we should. We actually, when we live in pride, we're living in a false reality of how things aren't. We're actually living in another world that's not reality. That's what pride is. When we live in pride, we're saying the universe revolves around me. The sun shines on me. The sun sets on me. Everything is about me. I am the center of this universe. And guess what? That is not reality. The Bible is reality. The Bible is reality. And so pride, we are viewing the world incorrectly. It's a false reality. We are seeing things through our lenses and not through God's lenses. It gives us a false sense of security, a false sense of hope, a false sense of eternity, a false sense of everything. Living in pride is kind of like living in a house of mirrors. Anybody ever gone to the carnival and walked through a house of mirrors? 
you know, you, you're, you're thinking you're okay, and you're running through there, and like, then you face plant right into a wall. Like, you think, oh, I got this, I can, I can work myself through this. Then you just bust your nose walking into a wall. Living in pride is like living in a house of mirrors, where the only reflection that you see is what? Yourself. And that ultimately one day you're going to run smack dab into God. And you're going to find out who is really the center of the universe. Is that like a house of mirrors, pride distorts reality. It does not give us a true view of our reality. And so, Nebuchadnezzar is humble, but it's a purposeful humbling. This is the point. It's a purposeful humbling. That's point number three, is that God must humble him in order to bring him back into reality, in order for Nebuchadnezzar to see how the world really operates and functions. And so God's, God's work, God's humbling, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. It's not just for God's enjoyment or God's God's pleasure. Oh, I get to humble him and make him eat grass and live with the beast and think like beasts. It's not, he doesn't come as God's enjoyment or his amusement to humble people, but it actually is purposeful, is that he wants him to see reality, and that reality is, is that God is the sovereign king over all the universe. And Daniel 4 continues to say that over and over. Look at verse 17, is that, he is humbling Nebuchadnezzar that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over the lowliest of men. You look at verse 25, is that he's humbling him that he may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26, that you may know that heaven rules. So there is purpose in God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar is it's to teach him his position in light of who God is. It's purposeful, and it is good, and it is wise, and it is just. And not only is it wise and just, his purpose, but also the process in which he humbles people is wise and just. Nebuchadnezzar comes to that, that understanding at the end. Look at this, verse 37. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. So not only is God's purpose in humbling to get him to know who God is and his position in light of God, but even the way in which he humbles is good and wise. He doesn't do it out of spite. He doesn't do it flippantly. He doesn't do it frivolously. He doesn't do it in vain. And so even Nebuchadnezzar, who can go through an experience like this, can at the end say, what God has done is good and just. Can you say what the psalmist says in Psalm 145, 17? The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. Can you say that about maybe a discipline that you've received from the Lord? An experience that you've received from the Lord? Can you say that? Is that, man, what God is doing, is doing is righteous and it's kind. That's hard to say in the moment, isn't it? Can you say that? Often I think we feel like God enjoys to see us in our pain. That he takes amusement at lighting at lighting the match and throwing it on and watching us burn. That he loves to see us writhing in our agony and humiliation. That is not the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible, his character is kind and is good. His intent and his purposes are kind is good, and it's for our good. And he does not do it to humiliate us or to cause us pain, but to restore us back to reality and back to himself and bring us to repentance. Because ultimately, he does not want anyone to perish. And ultimately, he does not want anyone to continue in pride because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he wants to show grace. That's his desire is to show grace, not to bring the hammer down on the proud. And so God is good in his discipline. He's good in the process of it. He's good in the purposes of it. And so how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to this discipline? Well, this is the last point. Personal repentance. Repentance from pride requires us to think differently about ourselves and about God. I want to do something really quick here, just a little illustration. Are there any kids in here that would mind just coming and just standing on the stage with me? Any kids in here? Preschool kids? Come on, come on. You come, come stand up here with me. Jillian, thank Lottie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can stand up. Could you stand up right here for me? That's great. Lottie. Only the girls know guys in here? Chicken. Chicken, chicken, chicken. Any, any other preschool kids want to come up here and stand with me? Man, you know, that y'all are really, really tall. You know that? Especially when I'm sitting down. Y'all are really tall. You think, you think you're pretty tall? Yeah? It's okay. You can say you're tall. It's not, it's not boastful. It's not prideful. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, <coughs> it's not prideful. Y'all feel pretty tall right now, right? Hey, Josh, would you come up here for a second? Y'all are pretty, I'm serious. Y'all are pretty tall. How old are you, Jillian? Six. Lottie, how old are you? Five. Y'all are pretty tall for five and six-year-olds. Josh, would you come stand right by Lottie? Jillian and Lottie, do y'all feel tall right now? Would y'all look at Josh? Look at, y'all can turn and look at Josh right here. Do y'all feel tall standing next to Josh? No, right? I don't feel tall standing next to Josh. So y'all can go ahead and be seated. Thank y'all for coming up. So the point of this is, is that you feel tall until you stand next to somebody really tall, right? You feel tall until you stand next to somebody who is really tall. And here's the point for, for Nebuchadnezzar's personal repentance, is he feels big until he stands next to Yahweh, and he comes into contact with him. Is that Babylon feels like a, an eternal and prosperous kingdom that can never be taken down. But in God's lenses and in God's view of Babylon and of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are an anthill compared to him. And so this is what personal repentance starts with for Nebuchadnezzar. So you see at the end of the verses is that Nebuchadnezzar comes to this point where he is praising Yahweh. He comes to his senses. He comes back to his sanity, right? He comes back to say, okay, uh, I'm lifting my eyes to heaven now to see the creator. And I, I, I realize his kingdom is everlasting and it's eternal. And, and, and nobody can accuse him of anything. Nobody can stand against him. This is Yahweh's kingdom. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, I now see myself, I now see my kingdom in light of God and his kingdom. And it looks very, very, very small. And so this is what personal repentance brings us to. Last point. Is that personal repentance requires us to do something. It's to put ourselves 
in light of the Holy One, God. So repentance is going to require from us three things, and I think we see these three characteristics in in, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's own personal repentance. These three A words, you can write these down. Acknowledgement, acknowledgement, approach, action. What's the three one? What it does, what personal repentance does, and what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's personal repentance is this, is that he comes to acknowledge who he is and his position in light of God. Just as we saw here, Lottie and Jillian thought they were really tall until they put them in a position with somebody who is really tall. Is that personal repentance for us starts with us acknowledging our position before a holy God, that we are lowly sinners deserving of nothing, but God has given everything into our hands. It starts with us acknowledging our position before a holy, loving God. Second thing is this, is that it goes to our approach now. Now now knowing our position in light of God is it now comes to an approach and that if we know our position in light of who God is, then there's only one approach to him. Humility. If you know who you are and you know who God is, there is no other approach other than coming to him in humility, realizing that you have nothing to give, you have nothing to offer, only everything to receive from his hands. Personal repentance must begin with us acknowledging who we are, who God is, and then taking a right approach to him in all things in our life. What is your approach to God? And the last thing is this, is that if we have a right acknowledgement of who God is and who we are, and we have a right approach to him, it must change our actions. This is what Daniel is actually telling and commanding Nebuchadnezzar to do. He's saying, in light of this dream, stop your sins and your transgressions. Turn away now. Do mercy and righteousness. So personal repentance must require us to acknowledge who we are in light of God, to approach him in humility, and to change our course of action and how we operate in this world, meaning that we must live in righteousness in light of who God is and in light of who we are in to him. This is what personal repentance is. It's turning away from sin and turning to, anybody remember that? We said it many weeks ago. Repentance is turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. And it requires us to start with acknowledging our position before God, who he is, approaching him rightly, and acting in line with those things. And so, this is what Nebuchadnezzar learns. He learns that he is not the king of the universe. He learns that, man, if I exalt myself, I will be humbled. But if I humble myself, I will be exalted. And that's what happens at the end of this story, is that he is restored back to his kingdom and back to his majesty. And this is his end line. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. But those who walk in humility, he is able to exalt. Let that be let that be how we operate in this world, congregation. And so are you living in pride right now? Are you living in pride? Have you personally repented? 
Have you acknowledged your position before God? Have you approached him rightly this week? Have you acted in accordance with who God is and who you are? This morning, I want to encourage all people in here. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before him. And if you don't know God, if you don't know Christ, the way that you begin by humbling yourself before the Lord is by thrusting yourselves on Jesus Christ. By repenting of your sins and trusting in him as God, Savior, and King. That God has sent Jesus Christ to come into this world to deal with the problem that we've created through our own pride, that being sin. And that we deserve death for our sin, but God does not give us what we deserve, but he is patient and kind to us and gives us his son Jesus to step in the gap for us and to die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that we might have forgiveness and that we who are low might be exalted in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you don't know who Christ is, I would love to speak with you after the service. If you are living in pride right now, I'd love to help you think through that, how you can humble yourself before the Lord. But I want to warn you, as Nebuchadnezzar was warned in this text, humble yourself before the Lord now before he humbles you on judgment day. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your kindness and your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you that you don't leave us where we are, but by your spirit working in us, you are transforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. And sometimes in our sin, you give us warnings that we need to just turn to you. I pray, Father, thank you for your patience with us. Continue to be patient with us, God, in our sin. Help us to be convicted by it. Help use your word and use your people to, to bring us to a knowledge of our sin so that we may turn away from it and turn to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. I want to invite the band back up as we respond in worship to him. I want us to sing in light of these things, in light of who God is and who we are, is that that should stimulate our singing together. That we're singing about only a holy God. That is who he is. And he has made very clear through his word who we are. So let us stand together and sing in light of who God is. Mm-hmm.